Hey, it's Otis here. Before we get to the bedtime reading, I wanted to let you know that I just launched a brand new show. It's called The Daily Book Club, a daytime companion to Sleepy, where you hear entire books one chapter at a time, one day at a time. Simple as that. So if Sleepy is how you uh, wind down your day, The Daily Book Club is a great way to start your day. There's new episodes daily. Uh, I read in a slightly peppier voice so that you can get really lost in these amazing stories that have stood the test of time. Or, just like Sleepy, you can sit back and relax and zone out to a good book. The first book we'll be reading is The Enchanted April by Elizabeth Von Arnhem. Story is, in the 1920s, four women unfulfilled with life take a chance and abscond to a dreamy medieval Italian castle. It's a story dripping with wisteria, the beauty of solitude, and an unlikely pursuit of joy in Portofino, Italy. I think that this is a perfect story for the season, and you can hear it now. Find The Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. This show has been a long time coming, and I'm so excited to bring you even more stories. So go subscribe to The Daily Book Club to hear what happens next. Thanks. This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well, and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high-quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones, they have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included. And there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network.
I've got an incredibly boring story for you tonight. And before I get to the reading, I just want to profoundly thank all of our brand new patrons on Patreon.com, which is an awesome site where you can uh, pledge a couple bucks for an ad-free version of the show. So, tonight's patrons, Manya Alviso, Luca Allen, Shay Dame, Sue Phillips, Robin Vaugh, Just Maya, Linda Winter, and Christina Alexander. Thank you all so, so much for being a part of making this show. It really means a lot. And for anyone who doesn't know, uh, these awesome names that I just read are brand new supporters of Sleepy on Patreon, which is a site where you can go and directly support the people who make the things that you like. So if you like the Sleepy Podcast, then consider going and um, pledging a couple bucks. That's what gets you the ad-free version of Sleepy. Um, $5 gets you access to uh, all of our poetry readings, which are completely separate from the normal podcast feed. But even if you donate a dollar, I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do. It all goes a really long way, so if you want to be a part of making this show, go to patreon.com slash sleepyradio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover-up for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. Tonight, I have a story that was genuinely difficult to uh, stay awake reading because it is, uh, in my humble opinion, as a modern person in 2023, a genuine mess of words. I just, uh, it's one of those books with the run-on sentences that last um, a long time, and for our purposes, that is exactly why I chose this book tonight. It's perfect, because it's rambling and nonsensical, and even after reading it for an hour, um, I still have genuinely no idea what's going on. So, kind of perfect, right? hope you can snooze very, very soundly to this um, story, The Golden Bowl by Henry James. No shade to Henry James. Sounds like a great guy. You're going to hear the first bit of this book told once so you can fall deep asleep and then it will repeat itself so you can stay deep asleep. And now's the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. 
Chapter One The prince had always liked his London, when it had come to him. He was one of the modern Romans who find by the Thames a more convincing image of the truth of the ancient state than any they have left by the Tiber. Brought up on the legend of the city to which the world paid tribute, he recognized in the present London much more than in contemporary Rome the real dimensions of such a case. If it was a question of an imperium, he said to himself, and if one wished, as a Roman, to recover a little sense of that, the place to do so was on London Bridge, or even on a fine afternoon in May at Hyde Park Corner. It was not indeed to either of those places that these grounds of his predilection, after all sufficiently vague, had, at the moment we are concerned with him, guided his steps. He had strayed simply enough into Bond Street, where his imagination, working at comparatively short range, caused him now and then to stop before a window in which objects massive and lumpish and silver and gold and the forms to which precious stones contribute, or in leather, steel, brass, applied to a hundred uses and abuses, were as tumbled together as if, in the insolence of the empire, they had been the loot of far-off victories. The young man's movements, however, betrayed no consistency of attention, not even for that matter, when one of his arrests had proceeded from possibilities and faces shaded as they passed him on the pavement, by huge beribboned hats, or more delicately tinted still under the tense silk of parasols held at perverse angles and waiting victorias. And the prince's undirected thought was not a little symptomatic, since, though the turn of the season had come and the flush of the streets begun to fade, the possibilities of faces on the August afternoon were still one of the notes of the scene. He was too restless. That was the fact. For any concentration, and the last idea that would just now have occurred to him in any connection was the idea of pursuit. He had been pursuing for six months as never in his life before, and what had actually unsteadied him as we join him, was the sense of how he had been justified. Capture had crowned the pursuit, or success, as he would otherwise have put it, had rewarded virtue, whereby the consciousness of these things made him, for the hour, rather serious than gay. A sobriety that might have consorted with failure sat in his handsome face, constructively regular, and grave, yet at the same time oddly, and as it might be, functionally almost radiant, with its dark blue eyes, its dark brown mustache, and its expression no more sharply foreign to an English view than have caused it sometimes to be observed in him, with a shallow felicity that he looked like a refined Irishman. What had happened was that shortly before, at three o'clock, his fate had practically been sealed, and that even when one pretended to no quarrel with it, in the moment that something of the grimness of a crunch key 
in the strongest lock that could be made. There was nothing to do as yet, further, but feel what one had done, and our personage felt it while he aimlessly wandered. It was already as if he were married, so definitely had the solicitors at three o'clock enabled the date to be fixed, and by so few days was that date now distant. He was to dine at half past eight o'clock with a young lady on whose behalf and on whose father's the London lawyers had reached and inspired harmony with his own man of business. Poor Calderoni, fresh from home and now apparently in the wondrous situation of being shown London before promptly leaving it again. By Mr. Fervor himself, Mr. Verver, whose easy way with his millions had taxed to such small purpose in the arrangement, the principle of reciprocity. The reciprocity with which the prince was during these minutes most struck was that of Calderoni's bestowal of his company for review of the lions. If there was one thing in the world the young man at this juncture clearly intended, it was to be much more decent as a son-in-law than lots of fellows he could think of had shown himself in that character. He thought of these fellows, from whom he was so to differ in English. He used mentally the English term to describe his difference, for familiar with the tongue from his earliest years, so that no note of strangeness remained with him, either for lip or for ear. He found it convenient in life for the greatest number of relations. He found it convenient, oddly, even for his relation with himself, though not unmindful that there might still, as time went on, be others, including a more intimate degree of that one, that would seek, possibly with violence, the larger or the finer issue, which was it, of the vernacular. Miss Verver had told him he spoke English too well. It was his only fault. He had not been able to speak worse, even to oblige her. When I speak worse, you see, I speak French, he had said, imitating thus that there were discriminations, doubtless of the invidious kind, for which that language was most apt. The girl had taken this. She let him know, as a reflection on her own French, which she had always so dreamed of making good, of making better, to say nothing of his evident feeling, that the idiom supposed a cleverness she was not a person to rise to. The prince's answer to such remarks, genial, charming, like every answer the parties to his new arrangements had yet from him, was that he was practicing his American in order to converse properly, on equal terms, as it were, with Mr. Verver. His prospective father-in-law had a command of it, he said, and put him at a disadvantage in any discussion. Besides which, well, besides which he had made to the girl the observation that positively, of all his observations yet, had most finely touched her. 
You know I think he's a real Galutomo. And no mistake, there are plenty of sham ones about. He seems to me simply the best man I've ever seen in my life. Well, my dear, why shouldn't he be? The girl had gaily inquired. It was this, precisely, that set the prince to think. The things, or many of them, that had made Mr. Verver what he was seemed practically to bring a charge of waste against the other things that, with the other people known to the young man, had failed of such a result. Why, his form, he had returned, might have made one doubt. Father's form, she hadn't seen it. It strikes me he hasn't got any. He hasn't got mine. He hasn't even got yours. Thank you for even, the girl laughed it out. Oh, yours, my dear, is tremendous. But your father has his own. I've made that out. So don't doubt it. But where has brought him out, that's the point. It's his goodness that has brought him out, our young woman had at this objective. Ah, darling, goodness, I think, never brought anyone out. Goodness, when it's real, precisely, rather keeps people in. He had been interested in his discrimination, which amused him. No, it's his way. It belongs to him. But she had wondered still. It's the American way, that's all. Exactly, it's all. It's all, I say. It fits him. Bill must be good for something. Do you think it would be good for you? Maggie Verver had smilingly asked. To which his reply had been just of the happiest. I don't feel, my dear, if you really want to know, that anything much can now either hurt me or help me such as I am, but you'll see for yourself. Say, however, I am a gallant Tuomo, which I devoutly hoe. I'm like a chicken, at best, chopped up and smothered in sauce, cooked down as a creme de volet, with half the parts left out. Your father's the natural fowl running about the bassicour, his feathers, movements, his sound. Those are the parts that, with me, are left out. All as a matter of course, since you can't eat a chicken alive. The prince had not been annoyed at this, but he had been positive. Well, I'm eating your father alive, which is the only way to taste him. I want to continue. And as it's when he talks American, he is most alive. So I must also cultivate it to get my pleasure. He couldn't make one like him so much in any other language. It mattered little that the girl had continued to demur. It was a mere play of her joy. I think he could make you like him in Chinese. 
it would be an unnecessary trouble. What I mean is that he's kind of a result of his inevitable tone. My liking is accordingly for the tone, which has made him possible. Oh, you'll hear enough of it, she laughed, before you've done with us. Only this, in truth, had made him frown a little. What do you mean, please, by having done with you? Why, found out about us all there is to find. He had been able to take it, indeed, easily as a joke. Ah, though, I'd begin with that. I know now, I feel never to be surprised. It's you, yourselves, meanwhile, he continued, who really know nothing. There are two parts of me. Yes, he had been moved to go on. One is made up of the history, the doings, the marriages, the crimes, the follies, the boundless bettises of other people especially of their infamous waste of money that might have come to me. Those things are written, literally in rows of volumes, in libraries, are as public as they're abominable. Everyone can get at them, and you, both of you, wonderfully look them in the face. But there's another part, very much smaller, doubtless, which, such as it is, represents my single self, the unknown, unimportant, unimportant. Unimportant save to you, personal quantity. About this, you found out nothing. Luckily, my dear, the girl had bravely said, for what then would become, please, of the promised occupation of my future, The young man remembered, even now, how extraordinarily clear, he couldn't call it anything else, she had looked in her prettiness, as she had said it. He also remembered what he had been moved to reply. The happiest reigns, we are taught, you know, are the reigns without any history. Oh, I'm not afraid of history. She had been sure of that. Call it the bad part, if you like. Yours certainly sticks out of you. What was it else? Maggie Verver had also said. As I supposed you must have seen. What you call your unknown quantity. Your particular self. It was the generations behind you. The follies and the crimes the plunder and the waste, the wicked Pope, the monster of all, whom so many of the volumes in your family library are all about. If you've read but two or three yet, I shall give myself up, but the more as soon as I have time to the rest. Where, therefore, she had put it to him again, without your archives, annals, infamies, would you have been? He recalled what, to this, he had gravely returned. I might have been in a somewhat better pecuniary situation 
but his actual situation under the head in question positively so little matter to them that, having by the time lived deep into the sense of his advantage, he had kept no impression of the girl's rejoinder. It had but sweetened the waters in which he now floated, tinted them as by the action of some essence, poured from a gold-topped phial for making one's bath aromatic. No one before him, never, not even the infamous Poe, had so sat up to his neck in such a bath. It showed, for that matter, how little one of his race could escape, after all, from history. What was it but history, and of their kind very much, to have assurance of the enjoyment of more money than the palace builder himself could have dreamed of? This was the element that bore him up, into which Maggie scattered, on occasion, her exquisite coloring drops. They were of the color, of what on earth, of what but the extraordinary American good faith. They were of the color of her innocence, and yet at the same time of her imagination, with which their relation, his and these people's, was all suffused. What he had further said on the occasion of which we thus represent him as catching the echoes from his own thoughts while he loitered, what he had further said came back to him, for it had been the voice itself of his luck, the soothing sound that was always with him. You Americans are almost incredibly romantic. Of course we are. That's just what makes everything so nice for us. Everything, he wondered. Well, everything that's nice at all. The world, the beautiful world, or anything in it that is beautiful. I mean, we see so much. He had looked at her a moment, and he well knew how she had struck him in respect to the beautiful world as one of the beautiful, the most beautiful things. But what he had answered was, you see too much. That's what may sometimes make you difficulties. When you don't, at least, he amended with a further thought, see too little. But he had quite granted that he knew what she meant, and his warning, perhaps, was needless. He had seen the follies of the romantic disposition, but there seemed somehow no follies in theirs. Nothing one was obliged to recognize but innocent pleasures, pleasures without penalties. Their enjoyment was a tribute to others without being a loss to themselves. Only the funny thing he had respectfully submitted was that her father, though older and wiser, and a man into the bargain, was as bad that is as good as herself. Oh, he's better, the girl had freely declared. That is, he's worse. His relation to the things he cares for, and I think beautiful, is absolutely romantic. So is his whole life over here. That's the most romantic thing I know. You mean his idea for his native place? 
Yes, a collection, the museum with which he wishes to endow it, and of which he means more, as you know, than of anything in the world. It's the work of his life and the motive of everything he does. The young man, in his actual mood, could have smiled again, smiled delicately, as he had then smiled at her. Has it been his motive in letting me have you? Yes, my dear, positively, or in a manner, she had said. American City isn't, by the way, his native town, but though he's not old, it's a young thing compared with him, a younger one. He started there. He has a feeling about it, and the place has grown, as he says, like the program of a charity performance. You're at any rate a part of his collection, she had explained. One of the things that can only be got over here. You're a rarity, an object of beauty, an object of price. You're not perhaps absolutely unique, but you're so curious and eminent that there are very few others like you. You belong to a class about which everything is known. You're what they call a Rousseau de Musée. I see. I have the great sign of it, he had risked, and I cost a lot of money. I haven't the least idea, she had gravely answered, what you cost, and he had quite adored, for the moment, her way of saying it. He had felt even, for the moment, vulgar, but he had made the best of that. When you find out if it were a question of parting with me, my value would in that case be estimated. She had looked to him with her charming eyes, as if his value were well before her. Yes, if you mean that I'd pay rather than lose you. And then there came again what this had made him say. Don't talk about me. It's you who are not of this age. You're a creature of braver and finer one. And the Cinquecento, at its most golden hour, wouldn't have been ashamed of you. It would of me. And if I didn't know some of the pieces your father had acquired, I should rather fear for American City, the criticism of experts. Would at all events be your idea? He had then just ruefully asked to send me there for safety. Well, we may have to come to it. I'll go anywhere you want. We must see first. It will be only if we have to come to it. There are things she had gone on that father puts away. The bigger and more cumbrous, of course, which he stores, is already stored in masses, here and in Paris, in Italy, in Spain, in warehouses, vaults, banks, safes, wonderful secret places. We've been like a pair of pirates, positively stage pirates. The sort who wink at each other and say, ha ha, 
when they come to where their treasure is buried. Ours is buried pretty well everywhere, except that we like to see what we travel with and have about us. These, the smaller pieces, are the things we take out and arrange as we can to make the hotels we stay at and the houses we hire a little less ugly. Of course, it's a danger, and we have to keep watch. But Father loves a fine piece, loves, as he says, the good of it, and it's for the company of some of his things that he's willing to run his risks. And we've had extraordinary luck. Maggie had made that point. We've never lost anything yet, and the finest objects are often the smallest. Values, in lots of cases, you must know, have nothing to do with size. But there's nothing, however tiny, she had wound up, that we've missed. I like the class. He had laughed for this, in which you place me. I shall be one of the little pieces that you unpack at the hotels, or at the worst in the hired houses, like this wonderful one and put out the family photographs in the new magazines. But it's something not to be so big that I have to be buried. Oh, she'd return. You shall not be buried, my dear, till you are dead. Unless indeed you call it burial to go to the American city. Before I pronounce, I should like to see my tomb. So... He had had, after his fashion, the last word in their interchange, save for the result of an observation that had risen to his lips at the beginning, which he had then checked, and which now came back to him. Good, bad, or indifferent, I hope there's one thing you believe about me. He had sounded solemn, even to himself, but she had taken it gaily. Ah, don't fix me down to one. I believe things enough about you, my dear, to have a few left, if most of them often go to smash. I've taken care of that. I've divided my faith into watertight compartments. We must manage not to sink. Chapter 1 The prince had always liked his London, when it had come to him. He was one of the modern Romans who find by the Thames a more convincing image of the truth of the ancient state than any they have left by the Tiber. Brought up on the legend of the city to which the world paid tribute, he recognized in the present London much more than in contemporary Rome the real dimensions of such a case. If it was a question of an imperium, he said to himself, and if one wished, as a Roman, to recover a little sense of that, the place to do so was on London Bridge, or even on a fine afternoon in May at Hyde Park Corner. It was not indeed to either of those places that these grounds of his predilection, after all sufficiently vague, had, at the moment we are concerned with him, guided his steps. 
He had strayed simply enough into Bond Street, where his imagination, working at comparatively short range, caused him now and then to stop before a window in which objects massive and lumpish and silver and gold and the forms to which precious stones contribute or in leather, steel, brass, applied to a hundred uses and abuses, were as tumbled together as if, in the insolence of the empire, they had been the loot of far-off victories. The young man's movements, however, betrayed no consistency of attention, not even for that matter, when one of his arrests had proceeded from possibilities and faces shaded, as they passed him on the pavement, by huge beribboned hats, or more delicately tinted still under the tense silk of parasols held at perverse angles and waiting victorias. And the prince's undirected thaw was not a little symptomatic, since, though the turn of the season had come and the flush of the streets begun to fade, the possibilities of faces on the August afternoon were still one of the notes of the scene. He was too restless. That was the fact. For any concentration, and the last idea that would just now have occurred to him in any connection was the idea of pursuit. He had been pursuing for six months as never in his life before, and what had actually unsteadied him as we join him was the sense of how he had been justified. Capture had crowned the pursuit or success, as he would otherwise have put it, had rewarded virtue, whereby the consciousness of these things made him, for the hour, rather serious than gay. A sobriety that might have consorted with failure sat in his handsome face, constructively regular and grave, yet at the same time oddly, and as it might be, functionally almost radiant, with its dark blue eyes, his dark brown mustache, and its expression, no more sharply foreign to an English view than have caused it sometimes to be observed in him, with a shallow felicity that he looked like a refined Irishman. What had happened was that shortly before, at three o'clock, his fate had practically been sealed, and that even when one pretended to no quarrel with it, in the moment, it's something of the grimness of a crunch key and the strongest lock that could be made. There was nothing to do as yet, further, but feel what one had done, and our personage felt it while he aimlessly wandered. It was already as if he were married, so definitely had the solicitors at three o'clock enabled the date to be fixed, and by so few days was that date now distant. He was to dine at half past eight o'clock with a young lady on whose behalf and on whose father's the London lawyers had reached inspired harmony with his own man of business. Poor Calderoni, fresh from home and now apparently in the wondrous situation of being shown London before promptly leaving it again. By Mr. Fervor himself, Mr. Verver, whose easy way with his millions had taxed such small purpose in the arrangements, the principle of reciprocity. 
The reciprocity with which the prince was during these minutes most struck was that of Calderoni's bestowal of his company for review of the lions. If there was one thing in the world the young man at this juncture clearly intended, it was to be much more decent as a son-in-law than lots of fellows he could think of had shown himself in that character. He thought of these fellows, from whom he was so to differ in English. He used mentally the English term to describe his difference, for familiar with the tongue from his earliest years, so that no note of strangeness remained with him, either for lip or for ear. He found it convenient in life with the greatest number of relations. He found it convenient, oddly, even for his relation with himself, though not unmindful that there might still, as time went on, be others, including a more intimate degree of that one, that would seek, possibly with violence, the larger or the finer issue, which was it, of the vernacular. Miss Verver had told him he spoke English too well. It was his only fault. He had not been able to speak worse, even to oblige her. When I speak worse, you see, I speak French, he had said, imitating thus that there were discriminations, doubtless of the invidious kind, for which that language was most apt. The girl had taken this. She let him know, as a reflection on her own French, which she had always so dreamed of making good, of making better, to say nothing of his evident feeling, that the idiom supposed a cleverness she was not a person to rise to. The prince's answer to such remarks, genial, charming, like every answer the parties to his new arrangements had yet from him, was that he was practicing his American in order to converse properly, on equal terms, as it were, with Mr. Verver. His prospective father-in-law had a command of it, he said, and put him at a disadvantage in any discussion. Besides which, well, besides which he had made to the girl the observation that positively, of all his observations yet, had most finely touched her. You know, I think he's a real galutomo, and no mistake. There are plenty of sham ones about. He seems to me simply the best man I've ever seen in my life. Well, my dear, why shouldn't he be? The girl had gaily inquired. It was this, precisely, that had set the prince to think. The things, or many of them, that made Mr. Verver what he was seemed practically to bring a charge of waste against the other things that, with the other people known to the young man, had failed of such a result. Why, his form, he had returned, might have made one doubt. Father's form, she hadn't seen it. It strikes me he hasn't got any. He hasn't got mine. He hasn't even got yours. Thank you for even, the girl laughed at him, 
Oh, yours, my dear, is tremendous. But your father has his own. I've made that out. So don't doubt it. It's where it's brought him out. That's the point. It's his goodness that has brought him out. Our young woman had at this objective. Ah, darling, goodness. I think never brought anyone out. Goodness, when it's real, precisely, rather keeps people in. He had been interested in his discrimination, which amused him. No, it's his way. It belongs to him. But she had wondered still. It's the American way. That's all. Exactly. It's all. It's all, I say. It fits him. Bell must be good for something. Do you think it would be good for you? Maggie Verver had smilingly asked. To which his reply had been just of the happiest. I don't feel, my dear, if you really want to know, that anything much can now either hurt me or help me. Such as I am. But you'll see for yourself. Say, however, I am a gallant Tuomo, which I devoutly hope. I'm like a chicken, at best, chopped up and smothered in sauce. Cooked down as a creme de volé, with half the parts left out. Your father's the natural fowl running about the bassicour. His feathers, movements, his sounds. Those are the parts that, with me, are left out. All as a matter of course, since you can't eat a chicken alive. The prince had not been annoyed at this, but he had been positive. Well, I'm eating your father alive, which is the only way to taste him. I want to continue, and as it's when he talks American, he is most alive. So I must also cultivate it to get my pleasure. He couldn't make one like him so much in any other language. It mattered little that the girl had continued to demur. It was a mere play of her joy. I think he could make you like him in Chinese. It would be an unnecessary trouble. What I mean is that he's kind of a result of his inevitable tone. My liking is accordingly for the tone, which has made him possible. Oh, you'll hear enough of it, she laughed, before you've done with us. Only this, in truth, had made him frown a little. What do you mean, please, by having done with you? Why? Found out about us all there is to find. He had been able to take it, indeed, easily as a joke. Ah, lo, I begin with that. I know now, I feel never to be surprised. It's you, yourselves, meanwhile, he continued, who really know nothing. There are two parts of me. Yes, he had been moved to go on. One is made up of the history, 
the doings, the marriages, the crimes, the follies, the boundless bettises of other people, especially of their infamous waste of money that might have come to me. Those things are written, literally in rows of volumes, in libraries, are as public as they're abominable. Everyone can get at them, and you, both of you, wonderfully look them in the face. But there's another part, very much smaller, doubtless, which, such as it is, represents my single self, the unknown, unimportant, unimportant. Unimportant save to you, personal quantity. About this, you found out nothing. Luckily, my dear, the girl had bravely said, for what then would become, please, of the promised occupation of my future. The young man remembered, even now, how extraordinarily clear, he couldn't call it anything else, she had looked in her prettiness as she had said it. He also remembered what he had been moved to reply. The happiest rains, we are taught, you know, are the rains without any history. Oh, I'm not afraid of history. She had been sure of that. Call it the bad part, if you like. Yours certainly sticks out of you. What was it else? Maggie Verver had also said. As I supposed you must have seen. What you call your unknown quantity. Your particular self. It was the generations behind you, the follies and the crimes, the plunder and the waste, the wicked Pope, the monster of all, whom so many of the volumes in your family library are all about. If you've read a two or three yet, I shall give myself up, but the more as soon as I have time to the rest. Where, therefore, she had put it to him again, Without your archives, annals, infamies, would you have been? He recalled what, to this, he had gravely returned. I might have been in a somewhat better pecuniary situation. But his actual situation, under the head in question, positively so little mattered to them that, having by the time lived deep into the sense of his advantage, he had kept no impression of the girl's rejoinder. It had but sweetened the waters in which he now floated, tinted them as by the action of some essence, poured from a gold-topped phial for making one's bath aromatic. No one before him, never, not even the infamous Poe, had so sat up to his neck in such a bath. It showed, for that matter, how little one of his race could escape, after all, from history. What was it but history, and of their kind very much, to have assurance of the enjoyment of more money than the palace builder himself could have dreamed of? This was the element that bore him up, into which Maggie scattered, on occasion, 
her exquisite coloring drops. They were of the color, of what on earth, of what but the extraordinary American good faith. They were of the color of her innocence, and yet at the same time of her imagination, with which their relation, his and these people's, was all suffused. What he had further said on the occasion of which we thus represent him as catching the echoes from his own thoughts while he loitered, what he had further said came back to him, for it had been the voice itself of his luck, the soothing sound that was always with him. You Americans are almost incredibly romantic. Of course we are. That's just what makes everything so nice for us. Everything, he wondered. Well, everything that's nice at all. The world, the beautiful world, or anything in it that is beautiful. I mean, we see so much. He had looked at her a moment, and he well knew how she had struck him in respect to the beautiful world as one of the beautiful, the most beautiful things. But what he had answered was, you see too much. That's what may sometimes make you difficulties. When you don't, at least, he amended with a further thought, see too little. But he had quite granted that he knew what she meant, and his warning, perhaps, was needless. He had seen the follies of the romantic disposition, but there seemed somehow no follies in theirs. Nothing one was obliged to recognize but innocent pleasures, pleasures without penalties. Their enjoyment was a tribute to others without being a loss to themselves. Only the funny thing he had respectfully submitted was that her father, though older and wiser, and a man into the bargain, was as bad, that is, as good as herself. Oh, he's better, the girl had freely declared. That is, he's worse. His relation to the things he cares for, and I think beautiful, is absolutely romantic. So is his whole life over here. That's the most romantic thing I know. You mean his idea for his native place? Yes, the collection. The museum with which he wishes to endow it, and of which he means more, as you know, than of anything in the world. It's the work of his life and the motive of everything he does. The young man, in his actual mood, could have smiled again, smiled delicately, as he had then smiled at her. Has it been his motive in letting me have you? Yes, my dear, positively, or in a manner, she had said. American City isn't, by the way, his native town, but though he's not old, it's a young thing compared with him. A younger one. He started there. He has a feeling about it. And the place has grown, as he says, like the program of a charity performance. 
You're at any rate a part of his collection, she had explained. One of the things that can only be got over here. You're a rarity, an object of beauty, an object of price. You're not perhaps absolutely unique, but you're so curious and eminent that there are very few others like you. You belong to a class about which everything is known. You're what they call a Rousseau de Musée. I see. I have the great sign of it, he had risked, and I cost a lot of money. I haven't the least idea, she had gravely answered, what you cost, and he had quite adored, for the moment, her way of saying it. He had felt even, for the moment, vulgar, but he had made the best of that. When you find out if it were a question of parting with me, my value would in that case be estimated. She had looked to him with her charming eyes, as if his value were well before her. Yes, if you mean that I'd pay rather than lose you. And then there came again what this had made him say. Don't talk about me. It's you who are not of this age. You're a creature of braver and finer one. And the Cinquecento, at its most golden hour, wouldn't have been ashamed of you. It would of me, and if I didn't know some of the pieces your father had acquired, I should rather fear, for American City, the criticism of experts. Would at all events be your idea? He then just ruefully asked to send me there for safety. Well, we may have to come to it. I'll go anywhere you want. We must see first. It will be only if we have to come to it. There are things she had gone on that father puts away. The bigger and more cumbrous, of course, which he stores already stored in masses here and in Paris in Italy, in Spain in warehouses, vaults, banks, safes wonderful secret places we've been like a pair of pirates positively stage pirates the sort who wink at each other and say ha ha when they come to where their treasure's buried ours is buried pretty well everywhere except that we like to see what we travel with and have about us. These, the smaller pieces, are the things we take out and arrange as we can to make the hotels we stay at and the houses we hire a little less ugly. Of course, it's a danger, and we have to keep watch. But Father loves a fine piece, loves, as he says, the good of it, it's for the company of some of his things that he's willing to run his risks. And we've had extraordinary luck. Maggie had made that point. We've never lost anything yet. And the finest objects are often the smallest. Values, in lots of cases, you must know, have nothing to do with size. But there's nothing, however tiny, she had wound up, that we've missed.
I like the class. Be a laugh for this, in which you place me. I shall be one of the little pieces that you unpack at the hotels, or at the worst in the hired houses, like this wonderful one, and put out the family photographs in the new magazines. But it's something not to be so big that I have to be buried. Oh, she'd return. You shall not be buried, my dear, till you are dead. Unless indeed you call it burial to go to the American city. Before I pronounce, I should like to see my tomb. So he had had, after his fashion, the last word in their interchange, save for the result of an observation that had risen to his lips at the beginning, which he had then checked and which now came back to him. Good, bad, or indifferent, I hope there's one thing you believe about me. He had sounded solemn, even to himself, but she had taken it gaily. Ah, don't fix me down to one. I believe things enough about you, my dear, to have a few left, if most of them often go to smash. I've taken care of that. I've divided my faith into watertight compartments. We must manage not to sink. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.